Welcome to This is Catholic. My name is Emily Yanazelli, and I'll be your host as we explore what it means to be Catholic today. I've often wondered, okay, what could the Roman Catholic hierarchy do if they were serious about change? It'll either change or it'll die. And I think I know the answer. Today, I'm talking to author John Dominic Crossan. By the way, I use my middle name, Dominic. Dominic, okay. Dom is a leading scholar of the historical Jesus and early Christianity and has written many books on the subjects, including Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography, which I recently read, and Resurrecting Easter, which he and his wife Sarah recently published. Dom grew up Catholic in Ireland, studied classics at boarding school, became a monk, then became a Catholic priest. He's no longer a priest, but I reached out to him to ask whether he still considers himself to be Catholic and what that means for him. In the email, you had uh, um, sort of differentiated or distinguished between Catholicism and Christianity, like in a couple of different ways, and I was just wondering if you could like elaborate on that. As I said, I think the most important thing for a Roman Catholic individual I just want to apologize in advance for all the clicking in the background. And for the Roman Catholic tradition and church is to really get clear in its own mind, are we one of the biggest parts of Christianity? You know, other ones might be smaller than we are, but we're a part. We're we're not separate from it. There's not like Christianity and then there's Roman Catholicism. Because I hear that type of language. Very often Roman Catholicism doesn't want to be in the World Council of Churches because that's kind of for... For others out there, it's, you know, a simple question is: Do you spend more time talking about Christ, thinking about Christ or the Pope? <laughs> you know, if somebody okay. asks you about the problems, you go immediately to the Pope or the Christ. As a scholar of the historical Jesus, Dom gives us a good perspective on the Christ. However, if you're interested in what the Pope has to say, subscribe to This Is Catholic podcast because I will be interviewing the Pope on one of the upcoming episodes, and I don't want you to miss it. Okay, but now back to Dom. Christianity is like the rock-bottom basis. Then within that, you can talk about being Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or Roman Catholic, Catholic, Protestant. It's almost like, I don't know, I might back off this. Say you're an American, and you can live here or you can live there. Okay. And you love very much where you live and think nobody should live anywhere else, like in Florida at the moment. <laughs> um, so for Dom, to be Catholic only makes sense within the context of Christianity, just like you can only live in Florida if you also live in the United States. That's what it means to me, to be a Christian and then within this tradition within Christianity. But I will never let it separate from Christianity, Mm. and that'll be the norm I will use. When I am judging anything about Roman Catholicism or how the papacy is acting, I will ask a, a Christian question, not a Roman Catholic question. So my first loyalty, if you will, is to Christianity. It's a secondary loyalty to Roman Catholicism. And even though it wasn't clear to me what it means to be a Christian, for Dom, it's very clear. I think it's pretty clear. Um, <laughs> After a lifetime. For me, right? for me as a historian, to be honest with you. Right. Because I, I started with history. I went to a classic boarding school. That meant I read Homer and Virgil before I ever got to the Old and New Testament. I read that because I was living in Ireland. We didn't, we didn't have a Bible in the house in Ireland. You didn't? No. I was really surprised by this. Roman Catholicism does not base itself on the Bible. It bases itself on the Missal, which has, of course, huge chunks 
of the Bible. And then 19 years as a monk, we prayed it every day in the in, in four hours at least in Gregorian chant, but it was chunks of the Bible. The Psalms were there, of course, and readings from the Bible. But the book you were reading was not the physical Bible. I couldn't tell you at what age I was when I actually first had a physical Bible in my hands. It's a different sensibility that I bring to it. So Jesus then, when I look at Jesus as a historian, Jesus lived the life of nonviolent resistance to Rome. This idea is really important that Jesus, Jesus lived, lived a life of, of nonviolent resistance to Rome. Rome. I mean, he, he didn't get run over by a chariot, he got publicly executed. And from the Roman point of view, that was the correct decision. If they had rounded up his closest followers, that would have been very wrong because that's the way they handled violent resistance. You grab them all, have a nice long row of crucifixions, they are all in a row. So Jesus basically is nonviolent resistance to Rome. Now, that's history as far as I'm concerned. It's not a question of belief. The historical fact is that Pilate executed Jesus for nonviolent resistance. Then theology comes in. Do I, as a Christian, think he was nuts? <laughs> Jesus, I mean. <laughs> You know, it's it's like two people can look at Martin Luther King and one think he's a Satan, the other think he's, a, he's an idiot. So I look at Jesus as a historian and as a Christian, I say, yes, I think the nonviolent life of Jesus is, as Jesus claimed, actually, a revelation of God. That the God of Jesus is the God who does not use violence, who gives reign to the just and the unjust. I would have no problem saying with complete sincerity, there's no God but Allah. And Muhammad is his prophet. Because in Christianity, Jesus is not the prophet of God. Mm -hmm. He is the son of God. And that means, I'm not talking about Mary's <laughs> virginitoring. The son of God in male primogeniture, the son of God is the heir. H-E-I-R of God. The claim of Christianity is not that Jesus speaks for God, but that Jesus lives God. The claim that I would make about Jesus is, of course, he says things that I think are true. But it's like the difference between Martin Luther King, if he had been a philosopher at Emory University, wrote beautiful books about nonviolence, died in his bed at the age of 70. <laughs> right. We could look at the books and we could say, yeah, well, yeah, nobody can do that. It's a nice idea, nonviolent resistance, but you're not going to do that. But he did it. Right. So it can be done. So that's where Jesus is important. It's not just that he says God is nonviolent. We should use nonviolent resistance against violence. All of that stuff he says, but then he does it. He's not like a coach who has this magnificent diet and exercise program to run the three-minute mile. Okay, so if you've got a magnificent theory about the three-minute mile, and then you do it. Oh, now I have to pay attention. And if yeah. you can do it, then maybe I can do it. So it, the doing is much more important than the talking. Right. To Jesus. Because the claim of Christianity is that, do I put it this way, that we can't see God, but the best shot we have of seeing God is looking at Jesus. That's not the claim of, of Islam. The claim of Islam is the revelation comes in the Quran. So for me, with all thanks and gratitude to Islam, we are not the people of the book, but the people of the person. We're not called, you know, Bible, Bibleianity. It's Christianity. <laughs> right. <laughs> And they would, they would never, they would, Muslim would be very offended if you called his religion Mohammedanism. Islam, yes, but not Mohammedanism. I really don't mean better or worse, but. Yeah. 
but it is different, profoundly different, is, is the claim that the life of this person gives us a vision of God. Not the words of this person, but the life. Yeah. And in the case of Jesus, all the way to martyrdom. So I have myself a vision of Jesus, which I am quite willing to defend historically. I just mean historically. When I say Christianity, it's not kind of, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. No, it, it has a solid historical basis. Okay. Then, then, of course, your act of faith has to be, do I think this is really the vision of God? Or do I think this was just some smart guy who figured... It's a good tactic not to use violence because yeah, the legions are too strong and we don't want to get you know killed. Is it just a strategy or a tactic or is it the image of God? So as far as I'm concerned, the theology kind of is the interpretation of history. It's not the only one. I'm quite aware that somebody could look at Jesus and say, okay, I know everything he did. I think that's ridiculous. I think nonviolent resistance is just wasting your time. What you need is better violence. <laughs> better violence, right. Yeah. So I know I know what I mean to be a Christian. Then I will use that very much to judge what I think a pope might be doing at the moment on whatever they're doing. Did you do? You, has that always been your conception, or is that something that's come out of your studies and your research? Oh, I think Emily has pretty much come out as clearly as I see it now, like that. I mean. You know, I knew I had to leave the priesthood and the monastery because basically I had been trained, magnificently trained, by the way. Well, I should back up. I didn't go into the monastery to become a professor. I went in because I wanted to be a, a missionary in Africa. Yeah. So I was 15 years of age, and I thought that sounded like a blast. A missionary yeah. monk in Africa. Like an adventure. I, right. I had no concept. I'm giving up my life for Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I was 15. I was in Ireland. It was 1949, I guess. There was nothing to I mean, this was a great adventure. <laughs> right. But when I went in, then they said, you've had five years of Greek and five years of Latin. That's extraordinary. No Americans have that. So you're going to become a professor. But then having been trained to think critically, mm -hmm. when the time came that they said, okay, now the Pope thinks this, you must support it. I would say, that, I think the Pope's wrong. That's what happened. Do you remember, like, the first time that happened when your research brought you to a conclusion that was different than what you were supposed to believe? Or or different than you did believe or thought you'd believe? Uh, yes, very clearly, at least the climactic moment. It was in, let me think, August of, it would have been August of 1968, when the encyclical Humana Vitae on birth control came out. Okay, I'm looking up Humana Vitae, July 25th, 1968, issued at a Vatican press conference, reaffirmed the orthodox teaching of the Catholic Church regarding married love, responsible parenthood, and the rejection of most forms of artificial contraception. Like most theologians, I knew this was wrong. I did not think it was right for a second that, say, to use a condom or something like that was a mortal sin. I thought it was absurd. And to say that it was defeating nature or something, well, you might as well argue you can't use a rear-view mirror in the, in the, <laughs> because your eyes are supposed to look forward. I thought it was bad theology. No jackets, no jackets. <laughs> you know, it's really... <laughs> And we were convinced it was not going that way, by the way, because most of the advice from the theologians was don't do this. So we thought that was done. But then what happened was I, almost as soon as it came out, I was invited to go on television and debate with a doctor, an MD doctor, mm -hmm. who insisted that rhythm is rhythm always works. In any case, it's kind of almost infallible. I had a sister who had six kids in Ireland. I knew, <laughs> I knew it didn't work. Um, <laughs> 
Which are you were still a, a priest at that time? Oh, I was still a priest and a monk at that stage. Oh, yes, okay. I went on, in fact, wearing a collar. But I was not coming on as a priest. I was coming on as a theologian. But I was aware that, you know, you're kind of going on in uniform to criticize the army. So I basically went on television and I said, well, Nixon is our president, but many of us think he's wrong about Vietnam. He's still our president, but he's wrong. The Pope is our Pope, but many of us think he's wrong. I thought it was nicely balanced, you know. Get everyone mad at me. <laughs> right. Well... The Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, the very next day, sent a letter to my religious superior. So that was the point where it really came to a crisis. That was where it really broke. At that stage, it had to be one or the other because I was trained to do research. It's not at all, Emily, that, you know, a research scholar thinks, I, I couldn't be wrong. Of course you could. Right. But your only integrity is to say what you found. Then if everyone else laughs at you, you go back and take another look at it. But if somebody tells you don't say that, that doesn't work for a scholar. If somebody tells you, no, your argument's all wrong because of this, 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 and this, then you have to respond. Scholars do it all the time, backwards and forwards. But what you won't take is either political or religious command. You cannot say that, even if you believe it. So I knew that I couldn't really be an obedient priest and a good scholar. And when I left the monastery, I did not want to spend the rest of my life fighting the Roman Catholic hierarchy, as I would have to do, because this is what I think. I wanted to spend my life working on Christianity. If it helps them, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to help them on questions of violence and things like that. Right now, for example, I'm talking with a whole Catholic group on Jesus and nonviolence. Fine. I've been writing about that for years, if, mm -hmm. if they want to hear that. But what I will not do is let them dictate what I can and cannot say. That's not pride at all. It's simply integrity. The, the department I'm in is the Department of Research, not well, Public and Relations. It's not really a fun challenge if you already know what the answer is supposed to be going into it, right? Yeah, I mean, you're told it's not that, an here's adventure our view, anymore. Here's our view, go, go defend it. Right. I wouldn't mind doing that, actually, if I believed in the view. If they were to say to me, we think women should be able to be ordained. Go prove that from the Bible. Said, that's, that's easy. There's not even a theological issue. There, there's an issue of power and, and discrimination. The issue of women's ordination gives a perfect example of how Dom views his Christianity as the norm for evaluating what any particular pope is saying. One thing um, that I really liked is how um, you talked about women being included in Jesus's ministry. One reason why that struck me is because in second grade I decided I wanted to be a priest. And I, nobody ever told me that I couldn't. I think they just said, oh, you, you can't be a priest, but you can be a cardinal. And if you're a cardinal, you can be the pope. But you were growing up Catholic then, obviously. Yes, yeah. And nobody said you can't be a priest. I, I remember there was someone saying, well, you can't be a priest, but you can't be the pope. And I was like, that's weird, but okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, that's trickier. <laughs> and then recently, a friend um, introduced me to this group. It's a group of Roman Catholic women priests. And I guess I was wondering what you think about that, like because I'm sure you've seen that whole conversation evolve. I think on, the, on a profound level, and it can't be more profound, actually, the pope is wrong here. I think if the... Papacy and the hierarchy had said, for example, well, we, we have not ordained women priests. It's not our tradition. It's not our habit. It's not our custom. I would say, all right. Okay, I disagree with you, but okay, customs can change, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. 
But to try and make a theology that says a woman is intrinsically incapable of being a priest is profoundly bad theology. It really is. It's unjustifiable. And the attempt to go beyond this is not her custom, that this is impossible, is a line that has been crossed from the way we do it when you can debate it and say, well, you know, customs changed. We had slavery for (laughs) thousands of years and customs can change. But to say you cannot, you cannot do this, is really on the most profound level sexism. It is. I mean, they can say all they want about it. But I don't think we should say anyone can't do anything until we see. Yeah, I probably can't be, a you know, a running back in the NFL. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the first run would finish me. But that's, <laughs> but that's, that's a different thing. That's in, incapacity to do this. It is absolutely against the teaching of the New Testament. They wouldn't use the word priest. But somebody like Paul takes it absolutely for granted that a woman could be an apostle. I highly recommend that you check out one of Dom's books, like Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography, for more about this. And if you could be an apostle, then the bishops are supposed to be the heirs of the apostles. So maybe women can't be priests, but they can be bishops. There you go. See, maybe that was my... It's it's very serious for me, Emily, because it is a denigration of theology. But when you say this is intrinsically impossible, that is, whether you like it or not, theological sexism. Is, do you and feel that's like, violent. Do you feel like that's like a moment where your Christianity is the, the norm rather than... Yes, okay. exactly. That would be a, an exact example. Uh, when, for example, you have in, 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 uh, first, in Galatians or 1 Corinthians, Paul saying that there's neither male nor female. Now, he certainly doesn't mean there's not the differences to male and female. He knows that. But he, he's refusing the hierarchy. And that shows up because even when he gets in to try and describe uh, marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he keeps insisting, so for the male, so for the female. Because the Romans would be quite willing to say, well, of course, the husband has rights over the wife's body. But they probably wouldn't come and say, and so does the wife over the husband. He is saying that husband and wife are equal within the marriage. That's not Roman. The the Roman theology might be quite willing to say husbands should love their wives. Of course. Uh And wives should obey their husband. So it is profoundly against the New Testament. It is, it's one of the two things that I think are very close to crimes against humanity in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it's it's a theoretical thing, you know, it's not like the beating of women or anything like that, but it's the most profound theological abuse of women. You know what I mean? Physical abuse is bad, (laughs) harassment. It's like a theological harassment of the whole sex. Another one, which is equally serious, which is... Instead of saying that sometimes a marriage breaks down, so the sacrament ceases when the consent ceases, to go back and say the marriage was invalid, that's, it's just not true. My wife, for example, was married before, absolutely a valid marriage. Two children came along, and my wife knew that, okay, probably this marriage is dead, and I'm going to wait until the children clear high school, but then I'm going to get divorced. So at some point there, the marriage ended and the sacrament ended. But to say it was invalid from the very beginning, um, that's just not true. <laughs> you you right. can't invalidate something backwards, <laughs> you know, by saying, well, it broke down, therefore it must have been invalid from the very beginning. If you went to a marriage, just have fun. If you went to a marriage on a, on a, on a movie set, how come you're not married? Because everyone knows it's just make-believe. I think those are the two huge theological 
moves that I think are absolutely indefensible. I mean, on their own terms, they have seriously damaged the theology of Roman Catholicism. I mean, mm-hmm. rather than saying, all right, when a, when a marriage breaks down irrevocably, the sacrament ends. There was a sacrament. Now there is no longer a sacrament. Do you think that the marriage one is something that you understood after being married? Or is that something that you were onto before? You know, pretty much when, when I was going through all of this, it was, we just don't do it. I mean, it's really only under the, the last pope that you began to say things like, a woman is Can't. genetically incapable of ordination. I had never heard that. You know, you said, well, why do we use Latin in the Mass? Well, we, that's the way we do it. Why does the priest have his back to the people? That's the way we do it. So, you know, all of this was simply the tradition and the customs. And I, I accepted. I mean, I, I wasn't even thinking of it particularly as a problem because most of the women I knew were having spent all their time in the house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was. It only became a possibility when you started to have women really in the workforce as right. doctors and lawyers and everything else. And then instead of saying, well, this is, this is our custom and we're not going to change our custom, that can be argued about. The Pope came up with this new one that it's theologically impossible, which is just not true. What do you think the real reason is for that? <sighs> hmm. There's a huge question, I think, of control. It's far harder to control people who can get married and, and children and everything else than, than an all-male or an all-female club. It's hard oh, for me to think of any other profound reason. I mean, the reason used to be, you know, so you couldn't pass it on to your children. That can be handled by legal fictions, whatever it is. I don't know. It goes along, though, with a huge amount of other stuff in Roman Catholicism. I'm, I'm going to put this bluntly. Almost anything that has to do with sex, they're wrong on. You know, I'd back off that because they're not wrong on rape or something like that. Of course not. Right. But almost anything that has to do with that, it's either overdone or wrong. And that's why most Roman Catholics are not following the right. Pope on all sorts of things that have to do with birth control. I mean, I think yes, it stands to reason. Like if I and a bunch of my girlfriends got together and wrote a bunch of things on how to be a priest or how to run a church, like we would be wrong. Yeah, and that's all right. You, <laughs> yeah, you can learn if you if you want, if you did right. the same thing and wrote about law or medicine, you'd be equally wrong. But the thing is, you could become a lawyer. You could become a doctor. Right. You could become a surgeon. You'd have to study and all the rest of it, of course. But nobody says, Emily, you cannot be a surgeon. Or nobody tells you you're incapable of trying. Right. You're just because you're a woman, you can't do it. It's, yeah. That's sexism. Right. It really is. It's interesting because to me, one thing about me being Catholic, it's the only real experience that I have with discrimination. I mean... And that is, that is discrimination. Yeah. I would hope the Roman Catholic hierarchy. I'm not going to say the Roman Catholic Church because I very much distinguish between the community, the tradition, and the hierarchy. I never use the hierarchy to mean the church. When when somebody says the church teaches, no, the hierarchy teaches. Um, then we see if the church follows or not. But I was in Rome the time of John the Twenty Third. As I said, I got my doctorate in '59, and then went straight to Rome for two years at the Biblical Institute for Exegesis Specialization. And those were the years of John the Twenty Third. 
I, I one time took 40 Americans to Mass with John the Twenty Third, almost like a private audience. He was up in Castle Gandalfo, it was in August, and he came out privately just to say Mass in the church, in the square of Castle Gandalfo. Not, you know, just he walked out from his place, and we knew about it, so we had them there. So I watched a holy pope try to change the church, because that was what, that was 19... 60, I was there till 61, then 62, 65 was the council. So when I came back from Rome, I knew all the people who were involved and all the theologians who were in trouble and all the rest of it. And I realized that a holy pope cannot change the church. It'll take more than that. So I look very much at Pope Francis and I wonder, can he do it? Because I am convinced that certain changes have to occur. And the reason for that is simply that change is the normalcy of life. Whether we like it or not, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. I'm not sure I would like it. <laughs> I was setting up the world, but nicer to set it up nice and static, and you know, right. but it changes. It changes. So it'll either change or it'll die. It might take a hundred years or more, but everything changes. Two people can grow old together and love one another, but things are going to change in the process. So I've often wondered, okay, what could the Roman Catholic hierarchy do if they were serious about change? And I think I know the answer. What? Within Roman Catholicism, I'm not talking about any radical change. Because Roman Catholicism always says the apostles, the bishops are the heirs of the apostles, you know that. Mm -hmm. Where do the cardinals come in? How come the curia is running the church so that when the pope has a council like we had with John Twenty-third, and the council goes back home in 65, it took only four years for the curia to completely change everything. I have to admit, I wasn't exactly sure what the curia is, so I looked it up. The papal court of the Vatican, by which the Roman Catholic Church is governed, it comprises various congregations, tribunals, and other commissions and departments. From Latin curia, denoting a division of an ancient Roman tribe, or the senate of cities other than Rome. So I see too much of the models of pagan Rome in papal Rome. If I was giving advice to the Pope, which he's had good sense not to ask me for, <laughs> <laughs> I would say... Reduce the cardinal to a honor. It's like monsignors. If you're a good right. priest, you get a monsignorate. It's a nice honor, red. If you're a good bishop, you get a cardinal. No power, just an honor. It's like me getting an honorary degree from a university. No power, it's a lovely honor. I would say, in Rome, a permanent council of bishops who represent the bishops of the country. So, for example, America would have one bishop there who represents them, England, and all the rest of it. And they would run the church along with the Pope. And when the time comes for electing a Pope, it would be done by all the bishops through them. I would simply reduce the cardinalate and the curia. So the bishops there who are permanently there could have their own uh, subcommittees and everything else. Mm-hmm. It's the permanent drag, I'm going to put this, of the curia that refuses to let the church change. But the Pope would have to have the courage to say, well, according to our tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, Christ created the apostles. I won't argue at any point here. The bishops are the heirs of the apostles. That means the bishops and I should run the church. 
He could yeah. do it. He would simply say there'll be no more cardinals and that the, the next pope would be elected by the bishops. <laughs> the pope actually could do it. He actually could do it. The curia would not exist. It would have to be appointed by the bishops. I guess it would It would be like if the president uh, made Congress people that he really liked Supreme Court members. But it was, yeah. is, I mean, I'm trying to think of an analogy. The analogy for us would be Suppose we put in the president for life, the Congress would change, be much the same as we do, we do it now, but they're supposed to be, as it were, the equivalent of the bishops. The cabinet would come closer to what the cardinals are. But but the would, would remain, be closer to the cabinet. Would remain after the would president. Remain. And there's nothing to stop the Pope having a group of counselors if he wants to, but it would be really... Plus bishops. It's the dead drag of the curia that will make it impossible for anyone to change the church. Thank you so much to John Dominic Crossan for joining me on This is Catholic Today. Do you still go to Mass or are you involved with a community like a not really because if I were if I were I'm living in a small town in Florida, if I were to go to Mass immediately this issue is going to come up. Mm-hmm. How do you think about this? How can, and I don't want to get into where we can't give you communion because you said yeah. you think the Pope's all wrong and all sorts of things. <laughs> I'd get pulled back into what I would call ecclesiastical politics. I don't even want to call it theology. So many Sundays of the year, I've been lecturing in churches and preaching, and I get to be in a different church, maybe half the, half the Sundays of the year. But. So yes, I'm involved with all sorts of communities, but no one community. Yeah, I would say the un- the universality that's important for me is the universality of Christianity, which is which I, you probably get to see being in a bunch of different churches, right? And even the more fundamental division of Roman Catholic versus, I would say, Western versus Eastern Christianity. Mm-hmm. To use it wider, since the year two thousand, I think about twenty times we've been in Eastern Christianity somewhere, anywhere Siberia, Siberia Serbia, <laughs> Romania, Russia, Coptic. So I know that fairly well, and that's really my Christianity. The other distinctions come later, and some of them I think are worth fighting over, and a lot of them are just, we won't give because we've done it this way. But that's the universality. That's the Catholicity that's important for me. Thank you again to John Dominic Crosston, and thank you for listening to this episode. I also want to give a special thanks to Dan Ide, who's the musician who wrote the song that you heard in the background today called Then He Went Home. Subscribe to the podcast, check out our website, and we'll see you next time. almost as silly for me as saying, well, Jesus was the Lamb of God, you know, so he kind of had a little tail. Mary had a little lamb. He was like, come on, I mean, this, this is a magnificent piece of poetry. And it's saying something. It ain't saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs>